Ciao, this is Lucas. Welcome to the Toast of the Wild East, podcast for ambitious Toastmasters willing to raise their game. Every Wednesday, a new episode comes out in which I interview a guest willing to share their insights about applying what they learn in Toastmasters in their professional career to help you do the same. Our guest today is Andrei Bobescu, Carnegie Master at Dale Carnegie Training, Associate Certified Coach and past District Director of District 95 from time when District 110, the wildest east of Europe, was still part of it. Andre, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Lucas. Nice to be with you. I'm so glad to have you here. Andre, what makes you happy these days? It's um, learning how to pilot a boat. Oh. <laughs> Together with my wife, uh, last year, we decided that being on water is something that we enjoy. And so this year, we found a little bit of time to uh, take an exam, which was not as easy as we thought, uh-huh. but also take some practical lessons. So now we can uh, pilot a motorboat and we have the legal right to do so out at sea, uh, at least within six nautical miles of the coast. Mm-hmm. And we plan by the end of this year and or, or hopefully the beginning of next year to be able to also go on sailboats which okay. is very, very exciting for both of us. Okay, six nautical miles, how far is that? It's about 11 kilometers. Okay. It's basically so- the limit where you can see the shoreline on a clear day. Because the point of that type of uh, boat permit is you um, you need to, to pilot the boat using coast landmarks, whether uh, lighthouses or any other main land, uh, landmarks. So if you want to, to uh, sail away from that, then you would need a different type of permit that would uh, force you to learn more about radio, um, communications and other types of navigation. So ours is where we can stay within eyesight of the shore. Okay, interesting. Hmm. So it means that you cannot cross the English Channel on a boat yet? <laughs> not yet no <laughs> it would be difficult to get there in the first place because we would have to go all the way like hug the coast imagine all the way around italy and then spain uh, but yeah not yet hopefully in the future in the future okay i mean how, how did you come up with this idea to to do this to pilot the boat because you know first when you said it i thought you were using it as a metaphor <laughs> for no, no 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 it's for real <laughs> So last year during pandemic, um, we decided to take a, a, a holiday within Romania because um, otherwise, you know, crossing the border last August would have been difficult. So we said, where can we go that is within the borders of the country, but it's also kind of remote. So chances of coming across people are low. So we went to the Danube Delta. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard it, I heard it once beautiful. It's it's a it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing part of the country. We had both been there uh, on business, so we delivered training programs in the area. So we said, you know what, let's 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 go there and just enjoy. And so we were there for a whole week, and every day we were out uh, on on the on the Danube. We were on on boats, and we we loved it. And we came back home after a week saying this is something we want to do ourselves, not just depend on other people, you know, pilots. So um, that's it. We had it in mind, and this year we made it happen, and it's ex- exciting. The the the, the, um, the idea of moving from a motorboat 
to a sailboat, which is, let's say, the latest uh, move we're making, is particularly exciting. Uh, we, we tried it out a few weeks ago. We were out at sea with uh, a skipper, so we were not by, by ourselves, but we were with a skipper. And the moment he switched off his engine that he used to get the boat out of the marina, and you could only hear the whooshing, whooshing of the, the, the waves and the, the sound of the sail that was being filled by the wind. I mean, it was just magical. We absolutely loved it. So yeah, it's, it can be a metaphor as well if I push it, but it's for the moment, it's, it's the real thing. It's actually sailing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's interesting that what brought you to this initially was the, the change of plans due to the pandemic. I know there's quite many people who picked up new hobbies or new sports or new activities exactly because they were facing different conditions. Even myself, I changed, I switched from Argentine tango to inline skating because, well, you do not need other people. That sounds very cool. It's 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 about balance, I would imagine. So there is that element together. Exactly, exactly. It's something that I really suck at since I was a child. I had some troubles with balance when I was a small kid. So all sports that require balance, I was particularly bad in those. But, you know, I always was like intrigued by it. And I was curious to take the challenge. And uh, yeah, then, you know, today you can learn anything from YouTube. So Mm -hmm. the loneliness, YouTube videos, I think that all resulted in uh, in this. I'm You're not right. super cool yet. I'm not doing a U-Ramp yet, but, you know, one day. One day. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> exactly. Maybe the day that you'll be sailing uh, from uh, from Lisbon to Mexico, uh, that will be the day when I will, you know, be on a U-Ramp. It's a deal. It's a deal. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, how, let's, you know, looking at the work, uh, the work-wise area, I know that, in your description on your LinkedIn profile, you have written that you are one of the 30 Carnegie masters in the world, taking care of more than 3000 Dale Carnegie trainers. What does one of 30 Carnegie masters do during their workday? So it's, it's all about, as we like to call it, um, being keepers of the flame. And I know it sounds a bit of a cliche, but it's it's true. Um, as an organization that was founded more than a hundred years ago, Dale Carnegie is, as many others are, struggling with keeping that consistency, uh, making sure that the quality level does not get diluted as we expand. Um, whenever we talk about a service organization, Uh, and training and consulting definitely falls under that category, uh, where we don't have something like a manufacturing process that can be replicated, let's say, when a new factory opens in a new country. It's it's very challenging to ensure that whatever we deliver in terms of training in Romania or the Czech Republic or Mexico or Portugal uh, are are similar. Uh, they're adapted to the local realities and expectations, but there's also a common thread, a common backbone. So our role as Carnegie Masters is to make sure that all the new trainers that come in the network and all the trainers that need to be recertified, because um, our trainers need to go through a recertification every three years, um, understand and use 
consistently our our methodology um, what we call our simple structures they're simple but they're not easy to to deliver trainings so we 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 are the keepers of the flame we have ways to both uh, challenge our trainers but also encourage them so that they constantly grow they constantly get better and maintain that element of of as i mentioned the the, the common backbone of what it means to to be in a dale carnegie program anywhere in the world so so that's if you wish the um the big picture um in terms of what we do every day so uh, on, on a daily basis that 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 depends very much it, it generally a, a day that of, of delivering a certification or a recertification event generally begins at about 5 a.m uh, where i tend to um uh, make sure that I have a, a very clear understanding of just review one last time who is going to be in the program. Um, usually we have pre preparation meetings that are online. Uh, and so I, I learn more about my participants and their expectations and their, their, their goals and so on. And then we meet, generally we meet at about 730. Uh, and we get started after just a, a bit of socializing, we get started at eight and we go all the way to about 6 p.m. And then during that day, there's a lot of practice, practice, practice with coaching. So I, uh, a Carnegie master would coach the, the participants, making sure that they understand why we're using certain approaches. Uh, we're helping them get past their habits because trainers, we all tend to develop habits ways of doing things and we fall into a rut we fall into a, a comfort zone and so sometimes we have to to yank them out of that comfort <laughs> zone mm -hmm. and so we do a lot of coaching and uh, encouraging them to um to um, adapt and then the evenings are generally spent either with one-to-one -one conversations whenever i feel that someone is in danger of not advancing which is code for failing mm -hmm. <laughs> so in case someone we feel is not advancing is not 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 moving forward as as they should then we we definitely want to have a conversation with them if for example we're at the end of a six-day certification event and at the very end i communicate to one of the candidates look uh you will not be advancing for this and this reason and it's a complete surprise to them, then I will have failed at my job. Uh, if, if I feel that someone is going into the wrong, in the wrong direction after the first or second day, I wanna make a point to connect to that person, talk to them, mention what they're doing well, what are the things that they need to get better at. And then every day, if I need to repeat that conversation, every day that needs to be made more clear. Mm -hmm. that it's their their success in this event will depend on that uh, on on changing or you know improving certain behaviors and uh, so that's why many of the evenings are spent having these one-to-one -one conversations making sure that people uh, go in the right direction so that's let's say a, a general bl blueprint of a certification day and of course it depends on many other things but that's a that's a big picture of it mm -hmm. Okay, you know, the way you're describing it, it really makes me think of, it is not too 
unlike Toastmasters, when I think of people in district leadership, or let's say even the district leadership, I think the description you use or the word you use, the keepers of the flame, I think it's quite nicely fitting. So do you see or did you see any parallels between what you're doing in Dale Carnegie and what you were doing in Toastmasters back then when you were in uh, when you were program quality director or district director that is in, in the leadership of the district? Absolutely. And, and maybe even more so because um, what I've noticed is, is that the lifespan in Toastmasters tends to be on average uh, shorter than in a in a company, in an organization like, like Carnegie or others. So people tend to um, join Toastmasters and either in their clubs or maybe go up to area levels. Um, and many of them, I, I don't know how it is right now, but back in the uh, 2005, 2006 and seven, sorry, uh, 15, 16, 17, um, there was a statistic in Toastmasters that only one Toastmaster member in a hundred would actually go all the way to uh, achieve their DTM, their Distinguished Toastmaster. I, I don't know, maybe things have, have changed since then, but that was not just because people were staying in the organization and not advancing, but many of them were leaving the organization. So because the lifespan in Toastmasters is consider considerably shorter than in, in, a, in, an, or in a company, it really um, um, requires uh, district leadership, and, and by that I mean beginning with area level, um, to be keepers of the flame and to inspire people and, and demonstrate to, to new members what Toastmasters can bring someone other than improving public speaking skills. Uh, this has been, for as long as I remember, one of the biggest challenges with Toastmasters that we position ourselves as a public speaking organization. We help people communicate better. The leadership aspect of it tends to be uh, uh, maybe a hidden gem, <laughs> something that only the more curious uh, Toastmasters members get to discover. And so as, as leaders in a district, it's absolutely essential to help um, Toastmasters members uh, achieve that realization and figure out what more Toastmasters can give them other than being better at public speaking. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm wondering that I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, when you joined Dale Carnegie, you did it because you were interested in becoming trainer and delivering trainings and then delivering trainings to clients. And then as Dale Carnegie master, you are doing something a little bit different. You're still doing trainings, but you're like, working internally or developing the internal people to help them get better when how how did how did the switch happen for you between Dale Carnegie trainer Dale Carnegie master and also what was the motivation for you to make the switch was it because it was a career advancement or was there something else toast uh, sorry Dale Carnegie <laughs> Dale Carnegie is a very I'd say flat type of organization. So we don't have so many hierarchical levels. Um, so we don't have like in companies N minus one, N minus two, minus seven, minus 10. Um, so it's difficult to speak of a Carnegie master being 
on a on an organizational pyramid on a higher place. Okay. Um, yeah, we do have levels. So we do have trainers, senior trainers, master trainers, and Carnegie masters. So if you look at it, it's we do have these four levels of competency yeah, in look, our look, network. Look, it looks like being on top for me. <laughs> but it's not it's not like being someone's boss so okay. it's not being a manager uh, i a, a, a uh, there is there is a difference in competence level and maybe in expectations for sure uh, but a, a a master trainer would not report to a carnegie master or a senior trainer would not have the regular trainer report to them so it's more of a um how should i call it, it it's it's more of a label um, which represents a person's experience and, and uh, level of competence as it is perceived, uh, but it's not necessarily a, a, a you know, reporting type of structure. Um, and coming back to your question, uh, what, what motivated me was the fact that I could work with a lot more of the Dale Carnegie network. Okay. Um, so we are present in about 80 countries. Mm -hmm. um, almost all European countries have some sort of a Dale Carnegie presence. And um, while working in Romania, I was able to interact with Romanian participants, and I still do. Uh, Romanian participants um, members of, or, or let's say working for Romanian companies or Romanian offices. Uh, when I began working as a master trainer and then Carnegie master, I was able to work with uh, participants from a lot more countries, a lot more cultural backgrounds, different perspectives. And that diversity is what attracted me. The fact that uh, you can interact with, and, and by interact, I mean more than just what, what you would do when you travel as a tourist mm -hmm. uh, and you, uh, uh, you, know, you, you interact with your uh, hotel receptionist or, or <laughs> the waiters at the restaurant, uh, but truly uh, have an immersive type of experience, uh, be there and, and interact with people who are so, so happy to share their their mindset their points of view their culture that for me has been outstanding um mm -hmm. and countries one of the beautiful things about europe is that although geographically we're quite condensed culturally we are very different so due to the historical background the fact that for centuries and centuries and centuries we developed so you know independently the different countries the different languages the different cultures are are just so amazingly rich and rewarding uh, while being within a you know one hour flight <laughs> or yeah. a few hours on a train and i know that you being in prague which is kind of the center of it all you're pretty much smack in the center of europe you know exactly what i mean mm-hmm yeah, it's true. And I have to say that what you said about like the motivation or the attraction was like the possibility to interact on deeper level with uh, people from various countries and cultures uh, was a big motivation. I think for me, it was very similar in Toastmasters, also taking the step up to the district leadership. One of the big pluses for me was that suddenly the playground was not Prague or was not the Czech Republic, but was half of the Europe. 
and mm-hmm. I could speak to people from Poland, Sweden, uh, Germany, Romania. Hmm. Okay, so I mean, you, among your among your favorite books, you also mentioned uh, Gerd Hofstede's Cultures and Organizations. So I'm curious whether you like this book, whether this was something that started your interest in culture, or whether it was the other way around that because you were so interested in different cultures, you just dove into this book. It, it was a, a little bit the other way around. Um, this book came at a very interesting point. Um, before Toastmasters and before Dale Carnegie, uh, I was member in a student organization called ISEC. And ISEC is, well, it defines itself as a multicultural student organization, which is meant to broaden horizons for members and everyone impacted. So I, I was a member of this organization for a good five years. And um, it, it was the, the whole point of being a member was to interact with people from other cultures who would either travel to um, your own country or whom you would meet in, in meet in conferences and so on. And it was there that I, um, I, I discovered this book. It was um, recommended to me by one of the trainers. And um, I, it it started for, it started by confirming or let's say giving me more perspective and giving me a, a clearer picture of things that I had already seen or had already experienced. Um, so as a member of ISEC, uh, I, I I traveled to to many conferences in Europe primarily, and I had seen these differences. And back at the age of 19, 20, 21, I, I could sense these differences, um, but I couldn't really put my finger on them. So I, I knew that there was something different besides the language. And then came uh, Hofstede's work and and uh, researching him and going th- deeper into the, uh, the host of websites that he has. And that has given me a, a, a clear understanding of where those differences come from, the uh, cultural dimensions, um, some of the ones that I'm particularly... Uh, let's say, impacted by, which is the uncertainty avoidance, me being a little bit um, sometimes too uh, avoiding of uncertainty, (laughs) too uh, structured and rigorous, and um, sometimes this approach of mine clashing with approaches of other people who tend to be a bit, to tend to see things uh, in a more relaxed way. Um, But overall, I think that what this this, uh, book has brought me was... um, a better or a clearer um, understanding of the fact that there's no good or bad. Uh, you know, it's not that I'm better than a German or a French or that a you know a, a Pole or a Czech is better than a Hungarian or a Romanian. Uh, it, this this whole open mindness that these differences are not there to uh, put us higher or lower, but simply to there there there's beauty. Let's say in this diversity is what I got from this book and from from seeing this book in the context of the cultures I experienced. So yeah, it, it influenced me a lot and uh, both professionally, because I, I, as I mentioned already, I worked with many people from different countries, but also personally, I mean, traveling to other countries and, and meeting and, and making friends uh, in Toastmasters and not only with uh, people from other cultures, this was a great way of, of uh, understanding 
how these differences can can bring people together rather than set them apart. I know it sounds again a little bit Hollywood, <laughs> uh-huh. like a motivational movie or something, but no, it's it's true. It's being being open and and being uh, close to someone despite differences, but in fact, thanks to these differences. Mm-hmm. Have you ever wondered why was it that you were so interested? I understand you. I think maybe it's general human need to seek connection but why was it that you were so interested in connecting with people outside outside your own culture because just in Bucharest you have a couple of million people right you don't need to travel abroad to make more friends I wish I I knew the answer to that question I guess it was a constant curiosity um, that has has always driven me. Uh, the fact that th- there always was this this um, interest in uh, in seeing or in understanding other ways of doing things. If I were to go back just a few more years, and uh, I promise I'm not going to go all the way to infancy. <laughs> But uh, back in high school, um, I was fortunate enough, and this was in the year 1995, I was fortunate enough to uh, earn a scholarship uh, to study for one year in the UK. So I was uh, 16, 17, and uh, I, I traveled there. Um, I, was a, I was a kid with no understanding of the world, recently um, um, Come, came out of, of communism, which again, I cannot say understood fully because I was 10 uh, when, uh, when communism fell in Romania. So I had a very narrow understanding of many things. And with that narrow understanding, um, I was plucked out of my, my cozy uh, home um, as an only child. And I was put in a British public school surrounded by uh, hundreds of of children of my age or similar who were nothing like me didn't speak like me didn't think like me um and so that was it was it was like complete overwhelming of all my senses for that year i got so much um in let's say so, so much understanding or so much um perception of of differences and uh, I think ever since then, I kept looking for that kind of rush, which is and, and joy and and happiness at uh, meeting people who are different. And I think that that could be, you know, it's now that you're asking me this question and I'm kind of thinking out loud, I'm not 100% sure that's the reason, but that that sounds like what may have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting because I think indeed uh, making connections or maybe like the initial encounter with somebody who's your neighbor who looks the same as you who shares a lot from of with your who shares a lot of your background encounter with someone who doesn't have all these things that someone is significantly different in mm-hmm. in one of the ways for example they be it just they speak a different language. I yeah. think there is somehow more excitement, maybe more curiosity, and maybe it just sparks 
different kind of interactions. True. Maybe. Mm-hmm. True. As I think it's a rush. Uh, that's the best way I can describe it. It's a rush. Uh-huh. <laughs> and was it that you were, um, because you said that your first encounter was when uh, was during your high school, was it always was it already then comfortable for you, or is it that you had to overcome some discomfort to be comfortable in those situations? It was very uncomfortable. Um, and back then, I um, I put this discomfort down to missing my family, because uh, um, in in my country, the idea of leaving one's home, leaving one's parents before the age of 18 where you when you would go to university is almost unheard of and if you happen to live in a city where there is a big university mm-hmm. so you would go to university in the same city where you grew up mm-hmm. then you wouldn't leave your parents home until 22 23 or even more oh yeah so that's 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 let's say the background I grew up in and let's say the um the future I was looking towards mm-hmm. and to be taken out and be at the age of 15 and be away from my parents. And this was back when um, you would not uh, have all the communication tools that we have today. So mm-hmm. I had one day per week when I could call them. So it was, it was quite <laughs> dramatic for a 15 year old, uh, oh, yeah. not being able to talk to my mother. Uh, but, you know, joking aside, I, I felt that this, that, that the discomfort was primarily due to this, uh, longing for home. Mm-hmm. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that it was not just that. That was maybe just the surface, the, the tip of the iceberg. The fact that uh, it was so different that people were um, um, behaving in ways that I was not used to. Uh, and even though the school, by the way, had, um, let's say, some 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 things, some systems put in place, some people who would serve as guides for the foreigners who came in mm-hmm. uh, so so as to ease their induction their their passage <laughs> through the school but even despite so despite those there was still difficulty so it's very uncomfortable and uh, now I know that it was not just missing home it was just a, a whole different culture a whole different um, the the fact that I everyone around me seemed to be so independent Mm-hmm. Uh, so self-reliant and I wasn't I felt I needed help and support every step of the way so that that pushed me to grow up a lot sooner than I otherwise would have mm-hmm. maybe not completely but at least it accelerated the process yeah well and nowadays you're meeting you're meeting a lot of new people every week or at least every month i imagine right have you ever counted on average how many new people do you meet every week due to your work and other activities so on on average i would say a few dozen new people so maybe 20 30 people um depends of course on the size of the groups um but but somewhere there a few dozen people mm-hmm. every week and mm-hmm. um and and there's one thing i have to tell you lucas it's um um the the discomfort of meeting and interacting with new people is still there 
Mm-hmm. Um, I really feel that maybe that was also one of the reasons why I, I decided to join Toastmasters, just to overcome this discomfort. Uh, and, it's, and it's funny, it's a bit paradoxical, because as a trainer, um, it's been now 20, 21 years since I began training you know, mm-hmm. full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, as a trainer, I stand up in front of a group of people and, you know, I try to sound articulate and get people engaged and so on. So when this is the context, the trainer in front of the group, I am within my comfort zone. But if I were to go to a, uh, let's say a networking meeting, uh, where I'm not the trainer, where I'm just a participant, my natural tendency is to walk in the room, look around and find people who I already know and go talk to them. And I realize that that is the very opposite of what such a meeting should be. I mean, I shouldn't socialize with people I already know. A networking meeting is, the goal is to meet new people and to forge new contacts. So so I, I still feel uncomfortable with that. And um, I, I, I believe that, look, until the age of 40 something, I still haven't overcome that completely. I guess this is going to be with me for the rest of my life. Um, but but this, is, this is something that has um, has been both a hindrance, so it's, it's kept me back, but I feel that it's also um, helped me with in, interacting with a number of people because um, many times I feel that when participants come to a training and they see this trainer who is so much in his element, like a fish in water, their idea is, I would never be like that. I can never be like this guy. Look at him. He's so energetic. So bum, bum, bum. Um, the fact that I, I still have this, I feel it makes me a lot more relatable. And I feel I can, I can see things from my participants' point of view uh-huh. a lot more. Mm-hmm. And so our, our relationship is, is a lot more honest, more, more genuine than mm-hmm. if I were the star on stage, comfortable with no fears, no inhibitions, no nothing. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? I'm... Yeah, yeah, to, totally. It, it, it makes total sense. Uh, I think there, there are different ways, there are different ways how to build connections with people. And I think one of them is, I think, indeed, to be the stars. And I think, in a way, people yeah. are attracted by the super charismatic uh, trainer, if I give it a obvious example like Tony Robbins right yeah he's got thousands tens of thousands of people in his events but then it's a different kind of connection than with someone that the people think well I mean I could imagine going for a coffee with this person have a normal conversation about ordinary things mm-hmm. right yeah I'm with you yeah um and I, I was also thinking you know speaking of this discomfort and overcoming discomfort of meeting new people and like contrasting it with your ability to meet, you say a couple of dozens of people every week, which would be more than a thousand people every year, which is, which is a lot, yeah. is a lot yeah. more than an average person does. I would say even maybe, maybe 50 times more than an average person does. Um, I was, you know, I was thinking about this also related to, to myself or to other people. So maybe actually this, that you got yourself into this position that you can be in your element in front of so many people, it might actually be like overcoming that discomfort because actually, you know, if you were by na- if people who are by nature shy, they might tend to 
try to overcome this or look for ways around this and actually becoming becoming a trainer becoming really good at it is a great way because you know you meet so many people when you are in your element and then the conversations that follow up are so much easier than if you were to meet somebody i don't know in a bar or on a street hmm. yeah that, that's a good point and and um I know that many trainers are in their heart of hearts introverts. So, so this idea that a trainer needs to be this flamboyant extrovert is, is, is totally false. It, it definitely creates a certain experience, but yeah, many people who are introverts make great trainers um, because what they do is they, um, they push people to reflection. Uh, they create sometimes um, a different type of environment, maybe where people feel safe or safer, and an, an environment where with, with well-placed questions, powerful questions, uh, people can, can investigate parts of themselves or their thoughts or their actions that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. So, so yeah, it, it could definitely be that, and I, it could be a way of overcoming <laughs> uh the, the the natural um self-consciousness or the natural fear maybe of uh that that we feel uh, when we meet new people and for some people it works for others it doesn't um i i, I can i can say that to a certain extent for me it did work so mm -hmm. yeah i i would agree with you that was one way of doing that yeah mm -hmm. i know that having authentic relationships is very important for you and also that you do not treat you know making friends as numbers game I, I i remember don't know if you remember when we spoke last time for an interview in april 2016 at the time you had 2764 friends on facebook which was uh, 124 less than one of the past presidents jim kokoski Right. And, and when, when I told you this, you were, you didn't feel challenged at all. And you said something like, if we speak a couple of years later, you're sure that Jim is going to be way, way more friends than you. Because... So did you, <laughs> did you do the numbers? What's the situation now? <laughs> I, I, see, I see you're curious. You know, your prediction was quite correct. So I checked your Facebook and today you have 3,150 friends, which is almost 400 more than five years ago. Which, which clearly means that you know you your excel you slowed down adding friends over the past five years which only supports what you just said right it's not about like adding as many friends on facebook as you can right and and, and you know try try to guess how many friends jim has <laughs> uh i don't know i think over five thousand. isn't that the limit <laughs> on where it becomes a page or something like that. Yeah, I, th I think 5,000 is a little bit, but he's, Jim, Jim is very close. He has 4,951. Yeah, so and, and rightfully so, and rightfully mm -hmm. so. Uh -huh. um, okay, I think it was a like, little intermezzo. What I was curious about is uh, you, you meet lots of people every week and, you know, lots, lots of people from your past. How do you manage to balance that how do you manage the to balance the inflow of new relationships friendships acquaintanceships with you know keeping going the keeping the relationships authentic and keeping in touch with the people that you met in the past um 
Well, there's a couple of things. One, keeping with the intermezzo um, of number of friends on Facebook, one of the things that has happened in the last couple of years, maybe a bit more, Mm -hmm. is that I have purposefully moved away from Facebook and I'm a lot more um, scrolling and more active um, on, on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that's, let's say that's where I get a lot of information from. Um, I, I, I feel that it's a lot closer to, uh, what I'm about. Interesting. Um, so you've made it your, your primary social network, basically. I, I would say so. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. where I communicate with, with most people. I, I use Facebook messenger a lot less. Uh, so, so that's it. It's, uh, th- that's just, um, one way that I've maybe willingly or unwillingly evolved in the last few years. Um, but how, how to keep that balance? I don't know if I would call it an, inf- call it an influx. Um, uh, what, I, what I do is uh, whenever I finish a, a training, uh, I do encourage participants to reach out whenever they have a question. Um, and this just happened what yesterday. I had a training yesterday morning. It was very early for us because it was for Asia. So it was afternoon in, in uh, Manila. And uh, we, um, what, what I did is I invited them, you know, if this is something that you're interested in, feel free to reach out. This is my email address. And I got one person, you know, from out of nine participants, one person who uh, uh, wrote back and asked me for some more. And what I do is I, I try in these quote unquote relationships. So in these acquaintances that I make former participants is to, to, to be a source of, of information, to be a source of value. Um, I, I don't know if I would call them, um, relationships. So that's why many of the people I meet, I, I am there to give them something to, to offer them something useful. It's part of, of, how I feel I want to live my life and why I'm in, in this in the first place. Um, and then the people that I'm close to, the people that I, I, I feel a connection with, you know, spiritually, mentally are, are very few, very, very few. So, so honestly, Lucas, I, I, I don't feel a struggle, um, uh, to to um, balance, let's say it's more. Um, how, what can I provide? How can I help the people I meet? And then the, the the ones I actually deal with are and have true connections with are very very few. I mean, I could count them on number on on fingers on my two hands, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I understand. And has it ever happened to you? Because in a way, the. Re- re- the interactions you have, they're very asymmetric, right? For, let's say, it was, was it yesterday, it was a group of nine people and you were yeah. the one trainer on that very day. But you might have, you know, three or four, maybe more sessions like that in a week. Whereas for each of each individual, uh, you are the one. Right. Carnegie Master, whom they meet. Have you ever, like, have they ever given you making you feel that the asymmetry that perhaps their expectations were that they were expecting maybe more engagement from you later or something like that? Some of them have. Um, and what, what happens is that because they see me as so open and willing to share, uh, then they, some people 
a, a small number, you know, I'm not going to make this blow it out of proportions, a small number of people will definitely keep in touch and make their expectations clear that they want some support. And, um, and sometimes I'm, I'm very happy to in other situations, it's not something I can truly help with, because uh, the issue is maybe connected to their company, their organization, it's not something I can help with. Um, but Somehow, I, I I never felt that this was a um, or this could be um, a, a challenge, um, as long as they are, um, um, you know, their their expectations or their requests uh, are are things I can I can follow up on or or provide information on. I'm very happy to do so, and it's it's not a pressure that I feel. Definitely okay. not. Okay, I understand. Yeah. Uh on another note, you shared with me that uh, you describe yourself as detail-oriented, stubborn, and curious, <laughs> which is interesting, especially because, especially detail-oriented and stubborn, I wouldn't expect them to be a typical traits for a trainer. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how, how do they link to what you chose for a career? Um, they do and they don't. Um... <laughs> Uh, when it comes to being detail oriented, um, I definitely feel that, especially when it comes to delivering uh, training for um, international groups, sometimes for people with um, a lot of experience, people who have been through many trainings in the past, people who are discerning, they, they can tell when a training is going well or not, uh, the devil is in the details. And so sometimes little things like the quality of the materials that we're sharing with them, the quality of the questions that we're asking, um, whether it's a conversation or a lecture, uh, these are things that people can pick up on, even if they're not trained uh, uh, or let's say certified trainers, people can f can figure out that a, a program is not what they need. And so sometimes that detail orientation on the part of a trainer is extremely, extremely important. It does have its downside, the fact that sometimes when I'm too focused on certain details of the program and I say, you know, this and this I need to deliver just so, I might lose sight of the bigger picture. I might lose uh, perspective, I might lose, um, let's say, the, the, the bird's eye view of the, the company's uh, business context, uh, what what people were were expecting. I, I actually had this, this happened to me last week. Um, I, I, uh, I traveled for an in-person training with, within Romania, and uh, I delivered for a group of people with whom I had had a, uh, an online preparation meeting. And during the online preparation meeting, I asked them questions about their expectations, what they want to get out of the training. So I had a full list, uh, both from them and from their managers, a list of expectations and needs for the training. Yeah. And sometimes I found myself just focusing on what I knew I need to deliver in the training and less on their needs, their expressed, ex expressed expectations. Okay. So that's why... Uh, I need, I am, I am detail oriented and it helps and I need to make sure it doesn't drive me away, divert me away from uh, the, the big picture of what I should be delivering. Mm -hmm. When it comes to stubborn, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this has really been a blessing and a curse. Um, 
because on the one hand, it's it's a blessing because uh, I, I I don't give up easily. Uh, you know, speak of the, uh, the, the what I mentioned at the very beginning um, with uh, my wife Emilia and I uh, pursuing uh, our hobby, our newfound hobby of piloting a boat. Mm-hmm. So having a boat permit, that is something that I I was very 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 stubborn about. Although everything was against it, you know, it was difficult to find time, uh, when to do it. We're about two hundred kilometers away from the sea, so we would have okay. to drive. Uh-huh. to get to somewhere where we can actually get on a boat so so there were lots of lots of uh, obstacles and because of the stubbornness it it helped so in personal and professional matters that that helps um where it doesn't help is um changing my mind about people um so you know having worked within a company like Dale Carnegie for, so I've been a training for, trainer for 20 years, but with Carnegie, I've been for 17. And so there are some people I've worked with for quite a long time. And in 17 years, nobody stays the same. I changed, those people changed. And yet my impression of a person um, is still the one of the person that was 10 or 15 years ago. So although I know that logically that person has changed, as have I, and so my opinion of them should evolve, I'm unable to do that. I I still see that person. I remember the conversations we had, the tensions, the arguments. And so so that's why that's that's where um, my stubbornness is is a is something that pulls me back rather than help me propel me forward Mm -hmm. so so that's why yeah it it helps to a certain extent but it's uh, like anything else it has a shadow a dark side which uh, like the force right (laughs) dark side uh which which i definitely um don't like don't enjoy and i'm doing my best to um you know overcome it as much as possible you you mentioned over overcoming something i'm wondering after 20 years in trainings are there still some skills that you need to work on? Are there still some areas for improvement that you see in yourself that you're actively working on? Uh, well, besides the very obvious, which is the online part. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, that, that's, that goes without saying. Trainers with 20 years of experience uh, stumbled when uh-huh. moving, from the, uh, moving the room from a physical to a virtual room. So that's yeah. the obvious one. I'm not even going to there. It's, it's, been a, it's been a big challenge, and it still is. But besides that, uh, the one thing that that I, I'm actively trying to work on is um, that sometimes I I, um, I do lose my patience mm. because sometimes participants um, come up with issues that I I've heard of, or let's say they're not <laughs> the first ones to mention them, and uh-huh. in my mind there's this stupid thought like, "Come on, man, not again." Uh-huh. Okay, so I, I kind of have a deja vu of other trainings where I dealt with this and where people and, and there's this question like, why isn't he getting it? You know, what's <laughs> so why isn't he getting the, the, what, what he or she should do? He or she uh-huh. should do. So, so there's that, that issue, which is, uh, which is um, a challenge, keeping an open mind, uh-huh. even, even having heard, not all of them, but definitely many issues that can appear in a, in a team or in a business keeping an open mind and and thinking from their perspective mm-hmm. um, that that has been a that has been a challenge because 
I, I do try as much as I can to have a coaching approach. So ask questions, but sometimes I ask questions and I kind of know the answer. So I say, okay, I'm not going to ask the question. I'm just going to give you the answer. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something I try to avoid doing. So not giving the answer, but having that patience and asking the question and mm-hmm. helping them discover it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's a big one. So um, if you remember those five years ago, we, rem- we spoke about some of your role models. I don't know them. You mentioned Case Bruce, who was a district director in Toastmasters. And you mentioned that he is the role model in something like being a good person or something mm-hmm. like that, that while mm-hmm. you're consciously trying to be a good person and react like a good person, you saw that Case was like a good person through and through. Yeah. So, uh, from what you're saying, it's 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 an ongoing, it's an ongoing work. Yeah, I'm I'm far from being there. I'm definitely working on that. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. One more thing I wanted to ask you is yeah, go on. the you the work you chose as a trainer to work in an organization in a big organization and support that one have you ever considered of doing it the other way around you know to be the independent trainer like i don't know mark brown dan Jaya, florian mook and any of these guys or girls have you and if yes what is it that you find more appealing in the career that you have now it, it was definitely uh and it still is on my radar uh-huh. um as a matter of fact, I have no idea what the future is going to bring, Lucas. So uh-huh. um, I am I am with Carnegie because I, I believe in the fundamental truth of of the Carnegie principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think there's truth there. I'm not saying it's it's the rule of law, but it, there's definitely some truth there about who we are as human beings, and that's why that's what draws to me. And besides that, there are some amazing people. Uh, in the in the Carnegie network with whom I just love working. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I realize that you never know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, no company is is forever. So yeah, we Carnegie does try to. Uh, it it has survived the last one hundred and almost ten years uh, because it has adapted. So there's chances. There's big chances that will will continue to be there, but who knows? Maybe one day I will uh, I'll realize that there is a misalignment between who I am at that moment and who the organization is. So I don't see myself as as being a Carnegie uh, trainer for the rest of my life. Someday I might be completely completely um, independent, um, and it, it does attract me uh, that kind of freedom. Uh, it's, it's definitely very enticing at the same time. It's very scary mm-hmm. because there's a lot more unknown, uh, a lot more volatility there, you know, you don't know if this month you're going to get paid or not. So there's, there's definitely the scare factor, which is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it is something that I'm considering. Uh, if one thing this year and a half has, has shown us is that anything can happen. That's true. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm definitely trying to find backup plans, um, seeing other areas in which I can um, work on. I, I'm not going to call it a career shift, 
but let's say a career evolution. Mm -hmm. So it's very possible that one day I'd be, uh, I don't know if I'd get to the same level as the Mark Browns and uh, Florian Mooks of the world who are absolutely amazing and, and they've got this energy. Uh, <laughs> it seems like like it's never ending energy, which I, I just, I'm so in, in complete awe of. Uh, so I'm not saying I go, I'll be at their level, but they're they're definitely uh, people to aspire to, mm -hmm. in terms of um, both drive and execution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe when we meet again in five years' time, because <laughs> it seems that you know if we meet in five years' time, then it will be a already a it's a habit that we're creating, right? We we have a conversation like this one every five years. <laughs> so if we meet again in five years, then. Uh, it will be interesting to see where we both are at that point. <laughs> I will I will definitely put it to my calendar and definitely then I will check the number of your friends on Facebook. <laughs> <first>. <laughs> if Facebook still exists, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, that, that's true. No, nobody knows what's going to happen. Okay, so, yeah. so, you know, maybe the very last thing I think in those masters, the people who are, especially those who are starting out or who are there for a couple of years, I think many of them are attracted by this idea of becoming a trainer and this is because that's why they stayed in Toastmasters for some time already, right? Because they enjoy sharing their thoughts, their ideas, their experiences. Um, from your perspective of somebody who's been in the business for two decades, would you be able to come up with three tips uh, for someone who's quite fresh Toastmasters, let's say a couple of years maximum, what is it that they should do to turn that nice little hobby into a profession. Mm -hmm. So number one is practice as often as possible for free. Mm -hmm. uh, so find as many opportunities to deliver training. Doesn't matter if it's a, you know, one hour or 15 minutes, uh, as many, as many opportunities as possible. That's that's it, um, which I said for free, but mm -hmm. what I what that actually means is that practice on on your own dime, you know, by spending money, because <laughs> mm -hmm. what that means is, is maybe having to travel to other parts of the country or other parts of the district, um, going to conferences, not having anyone cover that expense. So actually investing money uh, to be able to deliver. So, so that would be number one, uh, look for opportunities and, and even pay for them <laughs> if, if needed. Yeah. Um, number two is, um, ask for feedback, uh, but ask for feedback by preparing the people. So for example, let's say I'm going to a conference mm -hmm. and I deliver a program. Um, I, I wouldn't want to go to someone after. Of course, there will be in many conferences or training programs, there is a standard evaluation form. So mm -hmm. that's that goes without saying people will write some thoughts and yeah. That, that. But besides that, I would say go to someone, maybe one or two people that 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 we, we know. So people who we trust and we should go to them before the session. Before the session and tell them, look, I know you mentioned you'll be attending this is this or this is one thing that i'm trying to improve as a trainer uh can you look out for that and then after tell me how you feel that went mm -hmm. so give them a bit of a, a heads up 
if I go to the person just after mm -hmm. and I say, so how was it? The person's going to be nice and say, yeah, sure. Um, it was good. It was good. This was good. This, was... But it's going to be kind of all over the place, the feedback. Yeah, because maybe, I... they, were, maybe they were on their phone all the time. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but even if they're people, even if, you know, if they're the people we trust, let's mm -hmm. say, let, let's start with that assumption. If they're people we trust and we have a certain relationship with, then they might probably pay attention to the program, to the training. So they'll be there. But the fact that we go to them afterwards, after the fact, it might decrease the, the depth of the feedback. So giving them a heads up before the session, that's, uh, that, that's essential. So getting feedback as much as possible. Um, and there was one more. Take your time. No rush. I had it just a few seconds ago and then it just went away. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, watching as many other trainers as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I've noticed because I, I'm, I'm a proud guy. Mm -hmm. And when I watch a trainer who does things better than me, I tend to get jealous. I know it's so painful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so sometimes I say, nah, I know he's good. I'll just, I'll just skip this, but biting the bullet, living through that pain and watching that trainer who is better than me at something that is that's just an it doesn't mean i'm going to copy everything he or she does but watching them and 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 learning some things and maybe picking up on some tips that's just so amazing because to be a trainer is a lone wolf type of activity mm -hmm. uh, many times we are in front of a group of people we deliver you know, there's there's a lot of loneliness in this activity. Um, it's not so 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 often a team type of work. Unless, yes, of course, sometimes we work in a conference where we do co-training or whatever. But most of the time, it's a lone wolf type of activity. And many times, we tend to repeat the same habits. You know, do the same things over over and over again, uh, and they become second nature. So um, I, I definitely feel that that watching other trainers, especially if they're better than us, and and living through the pain uh, of of admitting it, I think that helps us a lot. So deliver as often as possible, uh, get feedback, but telling people ahead of time so that they can watch for something specific and watch trainers who are better than us and live through the pain uh, of, of seeing them perform so well. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, Andre. Great tips. I think uh, even I try to put them into action. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much for a delightful conversation after five years. And uh, yeah, definitely. I'm putting it uh, in my calendar for 2026. Yeah. I, as as uh, having had to uh, live through the pain of watching you train, <laughs> uh, I can tell you and, and, you know, realizing that you are so absolutely amazing a trainer in so many ways and biting my lip and, and learning while I watch you. Uh, I have to say that it's an absolute honor, Lucas, to, uh, to be invited and to have this wonderful conversation with you and explore 
corners, sometimes deep, dark corners that I maybe wouldn't have explored otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, so thank you so much. It's it's been an absolute pleasure. Fantastic. Talk to you soon. You heard Andre. If you want to become a trainer, go seek opportunities to deliver trainings for free. Ask for feedback and watch trainers that are better than you. Any Toastmasters conference or club visit training is a good place to start. Another thing you can do is to think of how to max out your friend limit on Facebook. Or maybe you don't need to do that. Hope you enjoyed. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can do so by adding this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcasting services. This way, you get notified about when the next episode comes out, so you won't miss it. Have a good one, and talk to you next time.